listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it is the morning of Tuesday, the 6th of September, 2022, in Seoul, and I'm joined here via Zoom by Sue Kim, somewhere in Washington, D.C., uh, and it's still last night, so we're going backwards in time. Before we get started, I'd like to remind all of you listeners, please, to leave a review about this podcast wherever you can. Spotify allows ratings, but not reviews. Audible allows reviews. Apple allows both. And on YouTube, you can like and subscribe and maybe even make a comment. Second, check out nknews.org and consider buying a subscription that helps to fund the excellent journalism that my colleagues put out every day. Thirdly, follow me on Twitter at JackoZ and nknews at nknews.org, all one word. For podcast suggestions, feedback, questions, you can tweet at us or email us at podcast at nknews.org. Okay, to introduce my guest today properly, Sue Kim is a policy analyst at RAND Corporation focused on national security and policy issues in the Indo-Pacific, the intelligence community, and U.S. homeland security. Before that, she spent seven years at the Central Intelligence Agency as a career analyst. She has done stints at the Department of State and several CIA-led interagency task forces handling the DPRK nuclear and leadership crises. Kim received a doctorate in international, uh, international affairs from the Johns Hopkins University SICE, and you can find her on Twitter at M-L-L-S-O-O-K-I-M. Welcome on the show, Sue Kim. Thanks for having me. So I thought we'd talk a little bit about uh, intelligence, propaganda, and uh, North Korea's decision-making processes today. Uh, given your CIA background, I have to ask, first off, have you ever been part of a black ops? <laughs> So I like to tell people that um, my job was no different from any other desk job you could have. Um, there's, you know, the cooler talk. Uh, there are occasional potlucks that people would do. Potlucks, wow. So, potlucks, yes. Um, black ops, if, if I was part of it, I would not know about it. Right. And even if you had, could you tell us? <laughs> I think we know the answer to that. Right. Yes. Uh, you'd have to kill me. Now, uh, when one is an analyst for the CIA or any intelligence organization, one obviously has access to information that is not open source, uh, that is information gathered through, for example, signals, signals intelligence, geospatial right. or imagery intelligence, human intelligence, measurement mm -hmm. and signature intelligence and other sources. But mm -hmm. when you leave the CIA, assuming that you don't have a constant regular leak from someone still within the agency, you're suddenly cut off from those sources. And I, I guess what I'm really wondering is how does a former intelligence agent transfer those skills mm -hmm. learned at the, at the agency into an environment where they no yeah. longer have access to sources yeah. and materials they once had at their fingertips? Uh-huh, uh -huh. Well, you know, I think you honed in on something that is, I think, Obviously, having the sources um, and, and the tradecraft is, is very important, but I think equally important is, is having the, the knowledge and, and the background. And for me, um, and I think I'm speaking on behalf of other free watchers as well, uh, having the Korean language, being familiar with the culture, and um, just, just keeping up to speed with what's going on in, in both the Koreas was tremendously helpful. Um, I think that being out um, of the, the IC, it, it affords a lot of freedom that you don't necessarily have when you're subject to, um, obviously, the, the regulations and, and the, the accountability that you have as an intelligence officer. So 
I think from my perspective and from my experience, um, I, I felt like this this <laughs> liberation, so to speak, ah. um, was was much more enriching for me professionally and also um, personally as well. As I, I think that I grew much more since my departure from the agency, um, as I was able to contribute to various platforms, written online, um, television, media, and so forth and interacting with people who have held stints, um, not just in the IC, but in DOD, State Department, um, academia, Korean government, and so forth. It, it allows, I think, um, a collection and treatment of resources that in a classified setting, you might not be able to have the time or the luxury to look at. I should point out to our listeners that uh, you used a little bit of jargon there. IC is, of course, intelligence community. That's something that I didn't mm -hmm. know before I started doing this podcast, but uh, mm -hmm. I had to pick up pretty quickly. So mm -hmm. uh, that's uh, a clear sign that you were once a member of the IC because only former <laughs> IC people say IC. <laughs> now, how does a, a former agent, uh, how does a former member of the IC stay on top of things uh, and relevant to the conversation? In other words, you can't access the classified information. So what what mm -hmm. do you go to for uh, for things? Is, is it just media? Sure. I think it depends on, well, I mean, it's also personality dependent, I would say. Mm. Um, and depending on how you've been trained academically, personally, uh, professionally, I'm sure there are go-to sources and, and your way of um, vetting um, the accuracy and the authoritativeness of the information that you're consuming. So uh, I, when I stepped out from the IC, um, I was not actually worried about the, the, the lack of information um, on North Korea in the open world, because as you know, um, I think in recent years, we've seen much more information on North Korea, mm. um, you know, lives of escapees being, you know, accounted in, in YouTube channels, or there's much more of a, perception, I think, and also uh, I, I think a, just diverse platforms where you can share information. So the challenge now, I think, is less about um, whether or not the sources are classified, but how do you make sense of all of the information that's coming out? I yeah. think that's that's probably the bigger challenge because it's, you know, when there's, when quantity expands or when quantity increases, um, that means, of course, you have much more volume to deal with. Then you have to face the challenge of time and and prioritizing prioritization, mm. as well as you know which sources are actually legitimate for for an analyst and for people who are really serious about the business. As an American citizen, it's obviously not really possible for you to to make mm. regular visits to North Korea to <laughs> get a feel of things on the ground, but. Do you see a value in, and, and do you yourself make mm -hmm. regular visits to South Korea to get a feel of how things are here? So I have not made a personal, you know, personally visit to South Korea since pre-pandemic. Um, I do think that, you know, the, the opportunity to interact with Korean scholars, Korean uh, North Korea watchers, um, and, and Korea-based think tanks, NGOs is valuable. But I think in, during the pandemic, I think we've also learned the um, the agility of having these virtual platforms where you can, you know, without having to feel, without having to feel like you're you're imposing on the other person. There's there's much more of I think an openness for people to communicate online. So I think that takes care of the efficiency aspect. But I do think mm -hmm. that making 
visits and, and frequently communicating with counterparts in South Korea and perhaps even in other countries. Um, I know that there are some UK-based scholars as well. Um, is is tremendously helpful because from just when you're an analyst, you spend a lot of time thinking and examining an issue by yourself. And I think we tend to fall into our biases and assumptions and uh, we expect things to happen. And sometimes two people can read the same document and get um, you know, shades of differences in their interpretation. And I think this is where interaction mm. and and feedback um, are, you know, are really helpful. Yes, yeah. No, I, I take your point that during the pandemic, there was a lot more uh, opportunities to uh, to communicate via uh, screen and other non-in-person methods. But uh, yeah, I I think we can't overstate the uh, the value of, of actually getting a sense of things on the ground. I, I can, I'm not going to name any names, but I can think of some scholars online who have written quite a bit about the careers and who have the language and the culture you'd think but they haven't been in south korea for many years and so it seems that uh, during the latter years of the moon administration mm -hmm. if i were to mm -hmm. to take their uh, analysis on face value uh, that we were one step off of communism here in south korea and president moon was a crypto communist who was uh, about to hand over the keys to the kingdom to uh, to kim jong-un uh, and that wasn't a sense that you could get from being on the ground here, but it was if you were mm -hmm. if you were staying in America and looking only at uh, at extreme right wing Korean YouTube channels and media. Mm. Yeah, so I, I just wanted to, to to say that to to sort of restate mm. the the value of uh, of coming here and getting a sense. And that's a, it's a pity that mm -hmm. none of us at the moment, of course, ever since the pandemic, no one's been able to do that in North Korea. No one's been able to to walk mm. around and, and right. see what's going on there. That that's uh, very much a, a closed system to us. So all we have. Uh, is is documentation uh, and videos and accounts of of people who come out, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which have their own limitations and biases too, right? Because right. they're uh, especially for people who come out that whatever time they came out, that's the the most recent thing they've got. Um, you know, they don't they don't really have access to what's happening on the ground since they've left. Most of them, right, right. And I guess this is where again, um, you know, it's it's different. Being, having access to South Korea is very different from having access to North Korea. And I think for mm. people with perhaps previous government experience too, um, I mean, I, for one, I cannot picture myself going to North Korea at any point to do research um, for my personal safety reasons and for my, you know, based on my previous affiliation, also my current affiliation. Mm -hmm. So the rare opportunities that people actually have to go inside North Korea, of course, they're going to be bringing back first-hand knowledge about the country. But I think we also have to remember that uh, the whatever we see and observe in North Korea, we do also have to remember that this is a very packaged country where um, if you're traveling in Pyongyang, um, you're not going to see uh, the realities of an average, ordinary North Korean citizen struggling to get by. Um, you're going to see what the regime um, wants the external observers to see. So, mm -hmm. um, and again, this is where the the value of having the knowledge, the geographical knowledge, the cultural familiarity, the language um, is is supposed to help. But I think also in some cases, um, you run across the gamut of Korea watchers and specialists. Everyone has their particular views about politics, economics, military, and so forth. So. 
I could sit with a, a fellow career researcher and we could see eye to eye on one issue, mm-hmm. but we could see, we could be totally, you know, on different planes on a different issue because of, uh, our, our, our biases and I think also um, the background or training, uh, you know, whether we've been trained as an academic or um, a military person or um, a diplomat, that is going to color the lens, I think, from which we do look at the country and we do make the assessments. How does that inform or how does that affect decision making by governments? I mean, you know, it's very, uh, it's very true, as you say, that two people can can agree on one thing, but then look mm-hmm. at the same document and see them in completely different ways. And then ultimately, uh, you know, it's the job of the intelligence community to to try to give assessments and um, uh, and forecasts to to governments to make decisions on things. And well, you know, we, we've we've seen that in the last two decades some cases where that's gone disastrously wrong. So, are there uh, checks and balances or, or ways to? Uh, to try to mitigate um, the, the biases and the differences of, uh, of understanding of the same documents? Well, I think this is where the interagency process or the interagency community would come in. Um, as intel officers, we're clearly not supposed to prescribe policy. And our job is to, I'm sure you've heard this before, but we are supposed to be analyzing the, the data mm. uh, that we have in our hands um, and to present a... Um, a fact-based uh, assessment um, for decision makers. So we're not really there to color the, you know, to offer our shades of interpretation, but there is an issue at hand. Uh, you are given, you know, a number of sources, as you mentioned earlier, human, SIGINT, MASINT, and so forth. Uh, and your job is to present what I think is supposed to be a picture that is as accurate to the to the realities of geopolitics of the circumstances of the country as you can based on, in the case of North Korea, based on what limited information that you have. And as I mentioned, people from the DOD, from State Department, from the CIA, from NSA, we're all coming together basically at the table. And I think the, not to sound cliche-ish, but I think the beauty of having this community is so that everyone comes together and shares their assessment on the same topic. And that's where I think assessing the veracity and the authenticity and authoritativeness of the sources and, and trying to figure out, you know, in this particular situation, um, does human prevail over um, SIGINT, mm-hmm. or should we be considering SIGINT factors more seriously as opposed to um, what we've heard from people who are on the ground? So it also depends on the issue. And I think this is where analysis is not really, there is a science to it, but it's also knowing, you know, the shades of different meanings and also understanding that it's, it's, it's also about interpretation. But of course, you have to tow, you know, you have to kind of balance the line between what's fact versus what's try- what you're trying to impose as your opinions and your, and I guess in some cases, you may want to try to push your own agenda. Mm. And that is not your job, obviously. Is there a, a, a major difference in the way that the IC uh, understands North Korea compared to other countries? I'm thinking specifically because it's really mm-hmm. uh, North Korea is inaccessible to intelligence officers. You know, you can't send a CIA agent to go mm-hmm. and, and do some on the ground observations in the way that you can in almost every other country in the world. So does that lead to 
significant differences in, in just methods and, and ways of understanding? You know, I haven't really analyzed another country um, as an intelligence officer, so I can't really say mm. um, if North Korea is going to be different. But I would say that um, having worked in a classified setting and now working in an open environment, to me, I, I still think that no matter how sparse the information set, um, you can still draw conclusions. You can still identify gaps that are still tremendously helpful. I mean, you can have all of the information that you need or that you could possibly have, and you can still draw an inaccurate conclusion. So ideally, of course, yes, it's going to be much more, I think it would make the life of a, a North Korean analyst much easier if we can verify the information. But in this case, we cannot. Yeah. But I think there's enough analysis, enough history, enough previous research done by senior scholars and former government officials that even if we can't connect the dots to, you know, to, to draw a complete finished picture, we can still sort of make out, I would say, you know, the hazy contours of what that figure is supposed to be. Well, in understanding those hazy contours, uh, given the, the, the limitations, what does the structural, what does the intelligence community do well on North Korea? And feel free to be mm -hmm. as, as granular in the, in the detail mm -hmm. as you can mm -hmm. about what areas of North Korea it really has a good grip on. Well, you know, it's been about, it's been almost a decade since I left. Ah. So I imagine the, the offices have changed. I also imagine the personnel has changed. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing that I can say that the intel community does really well is that well, of course, there's a recognition that the problem is a um, it's a persistent threat. I do think that when it comes to understanding the the Kim regimes, and that this could be Kim Jong Il regime or Kim Jong Un regime, understanding the strategy of the country, especially vis-a-vis -vis the weapons program, uh, I think that the intel community and perhaps um, just the broader interagency um, does a fairly consistent job, I would say, in terms of um, understanding the, the seriousness of the threat, while also trying to, and this is going to depend, I think, on politics as well, but understanding that um, it's not just about the ease of force, but also um, efforts to communicate to the North Koreans that um, the United States and perhaps even South Korea um, is open to diplomacy. And that's, of course, um, what the Biden administration has been stressing is that the door remains open to diplomacy, but it's also it's also on the regime to to try to open this door um, and, and, and to try to uh, resume dialogue uh, with Washington in the hopes of uh, reducing the DPRP nuclear threat. But as we know, mm. uh, we don't really see any indications of that right now. You say that you've been out of the IC for about a decade. Uh, were you there in the, the early part of the Kim Jong-un years of North Korea? I was, but uh, I, I don't think we had a, a clear understanding of Kim Jong-un as a person. Mm. Um, I would say that the, the the entire world, I would say, didn't really have a clear grasp of him. I, I don't think we do still. Um, I think we're still trying to assess who he is and and his weaknesses. Mm. Um, we know that he's been having some health problems. Uh, we are basically piecing the dots together based on our knowledge of the Kim family. 
and um, you know how his his grandfather and his father had ruled the country. And I do think that we are doing you know consistent effort. I, I would say in terms of trying to check our assumptions with with what's actually going on inside North Korea. And also, I think yeah. for me, I think it's important to. Obviously, we want to get a better grasp of what's going on in North Korea. But sometimes I think that um, with politics and the change in administration and different prioritizations um, by new presidents in the United States and South Korea and so forth, we might see the problem still consistently the same way. But I think the approaches that we take are, are quite different sometimes. Um, mm. I think the bottom line doesn't change. But because the approach changes, I think sometimes we kind of fool ourselves into thinking that maybe we're, we're dealing with something different here. But I could be wrong, but I, I don't think we're dealing with um, a North Korea that's really changed since Kim Jong-un. Can you think of any mistakes or failings made by the uh, intelligence community in uh, the last decade while Kim Jong-un has been in power? Well, the biggest mistake, and I think I could try to advocate on behalf of EIC or I think on behalf of all Korea watchers is that we we assumed or we expected Kim Jong-un to, to falter as a leader because mm. of the lack of leadership experience. He's young, he's exposed, he was exposed to um, European education, um, he was into basketball. So right. all of these activities that he participated in, um, we thought and, and any normal adolescent uh, would, would see influence. And we, we expected, you know, on the one hand, we expected him to be much more open um, to the Western world. And in some ways he is, but not to the extent that he's going to want to consider economically and politically reforming his country, mm. uh, because that is going to be equivalent to, um, of course, um, uh, consequences on his leadership and, and the Kim regime. So I think we, I'm not sure if we got it wrong, but I think that we we came to make quick conclusions about Kim Jong-un and what he's able to do. But, you know, he's been in power for, you know, about a decade. And um, of course, he has also made, I would say, small mistakes, but it doesn't really change the calculus for him. I think he is still making progress mm. as a leader. He has been able to make tremendous leaps and bounds in his uh, weapons development programs, of course. And of course, we don't know what is going on inside North Korea's decision-making and, and how, how to really characterize Kim Jong-un's grip on power. But I think on the exterior, we see a leader who is still able to maintain his mandate. We do see, I think, some moments of insecurity where he does try to tighten and increase surveillance on the people in the form of, of course, uh, restricting access to uh, external information. But by and large, um, he, he doesn't seem, we're seeing the same North Korea that we saw during Kim Jong-il's era, I would say, broadly speaking, with mm -hmm. their interactions with the United States and South Korea, the external world, but again, I think that if we were dealing with an open country, say that we were dealing with a, a South Korean government and we had no idea who this new leader was, except mm. for, you know, tricklings of information, would we 
would we be so critical, I think, um, about that, about our miscalculations and, um, you know, our misjudgment on, on um, the future, the longevity of a person's leadership and, and the future of a country. And I think that's where, not to cut Korea watchers, of course, slack, but I think in dealing with North Korea, nobody, I think, can, can say with confidence that they can predict what's going to happen um, with Kim Jong-un or his, his family or the country's decision-making. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it's just, it's, we're, we're throwing, I think, a shot in the dark. And at best, um, we're trying to make informed decisions. But to say that, whether it's the IC or the U.S. government or um, South Koreans, to say that we got it wrong, I think, um, it, it, it makes, I think, the the North Korea challenge and I think the job of analysts much more like a, it becomes more like a, like a mathematical formula where there's a clear right and wrong answer. Mm-hmm. And in this case, I think you have to leave room for some grays. Okay, I want to come back later on to, uh, to North Korea's decision-making. But first, let's talk about propaganda uh, for a little bit because uh, that's one of your research areas is North Korean propaganda. And uh, of course, it, it uh, through the decades, uh, North Korean prop has come in, in various forms since the late 1940s. North Korea's had its own newspapers and then there were leaflets during the Korean War. And now we have YouTube videos and each, each one is crafted with a different message and trying to reach a different target audience with a, a specific desired effect. Could you give us a, a brief overview mm-hmm. of how you look at North Korean propaganda? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think we, we've been seeing a lot of YouTube channels from North Korean escapees. And I think on the one hand, it's great. I think that having people speak out against the regime, um, trying to, uh, you know, it's, it is about telling the truth. But I think that every escapee has their personal narrative and, and their experiences and how they got to where they are today. Uh, so there's no, there's no set way, I think, that an escapee is motivated to leave the country and, and go through the trials and, and the suffering, essentially, um, to, 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 to leave their country and to create a new life. So I think in that respect, it's been very... In some ways, it's been overwhelming because we're seeing a lot of these channels pop up. So depending on, I think, your specialty area, you could spend a lot of time looking at these videos and and trying to um, understand um, perhaps a new facet of North Korean life inside the country, Mm -hmm. um, the experiences of then North Koreans of, of varying backgrounds, too. We have um, you know, people who were more from the more ordinary classes. Um, we have, uh, you know, North Korean escapees who were from the more uh, established and, and well, uh, well-to-do families also. So the backgrounds, I think, are very, very interesting. Um, ah, but I'm thinking specifically about the YouTube videos made by and released by North Korea. The regime. The yeah. regime. Yeah, so that that is also very interesting. So I, I think that... This is a fine line for me. Um, I know that there is some value in having information come out basically directly from the regime mm. to the internal or international observers. But this is where I think your judgment as an analyst, your judgment as a Korea watcher is actually very, very important is that one, you need to determine um, what is fact and what is not 
you know, what is not really fact, but what's distorted by the regime. But even with that, I think you could still analyze the, the style of the messaging and why the regime chooses to use this vehicle versus something else to yeah. convey um, maybe a point of criticism, you know, about their COVID policy or um, their restrictions on, on, on the young people and how much freedom people actually have inside the country. So I'm neither for nor against, I think, what comes out from the you know, state propaganda. Mm. But I do think that if the information does come out, we do need to be more vigilant and not just in, in analyzing the content, but also kind of putting checks and balances on our own thought process as well. Now, do you uh, draw a, a, a clear distinction between North Korea's internal messaging and North mm. Korea's external messaging? Because mm -hmm. it seems to me mm. just, you know, well, given the yeah. stability of the regime for the last 70 years, that North Korea's internal propaganda has worked pretty well. But North Korea's external propaganda, either towards South Korea or to the rest of the world, has pretty much failed or even backfired. I mean, I'm thinking, for example, uh, mm. back in the 1980s and 1990s, North Korea state paid lots of money to have uh, full page advertisements in the New York Times, for example, without really any effect. Uh, and yeah. then just what, uh, six years ago, seven years ago, when Park Geun-hye was president, they were sending leaflets over here with very graphic and visually offensive uh, cartoons and content and i don't think that turned many south korean people into north korean fans so do you, how do you see the difference between internal and external propaganda yeah that's really interesting um so i think this is where north korea so north korea has a really good understanding i would say of how like how the the external world perceives the country and when it comes to strategizing on obviously the priority topics weapons uh leadership I, I i don't think that they're they've been really off the mark in many cases but i think when it comes to state propaganda or their messaging towards the external audience it seems like there there are sensitivities and and areas that we for north korea should be off limits criticizing the leadership and and um, pointing out weaknesses in in the system and that's where we see, you know, a sensitive reaction from, from North Korea. But as you said, um, these these messages aren't really catching mm. the rest of us. Uh, and it could be, of course, the, the style of, of, of delivery. Uh, but I think that the kernel of truth is where we're at odds is because we know as external observers and we know as historians, as uh, policy specialists, how the Korean War evolved and how it concluded, uh, the the, the inter-Korean relations between, you know, across various presidencies, uh, US North Korean negotiations. Um, the facts are pretty much available for, for people to examine and, and to debate and, and, and to analyze and offer their own interpretations. But North Korea's efforts to basically not address these truths and to just continue to push a certain type of uh, narrative that might work with the North Korean internal population, but it's not going to work for the rest of us because mm. we have the, I mean, we have the, it's not a privilege, but we have the basic rights, I think, mm. uh, to be able to make that judgment ourselves without being forced and fed the information. So 
the freedom of choice and I think the freedom to be able to question um, the freedom of education, well, not education, but uh, the freedom to make our own decisions um, yeah. and, and assess things for ourselves, I think is big. Um, so I think from North Korea's perspective, they have a clear understanding that it's very different systems, but uh, you're still seeing things from a, a very North Korean and Kim Jong-un regime or Kim regime lens. And therefore, uh, the messages that you are crafting are going to have that flavor and that twist. And um, this is where we do see that gap between the efforts and, and the, the effectiveness of um, some of their, their messaging, I would say. What tools can we bring to analyze North Korean propaganda and, and why is it mm -hmm. worth bothering? What can we actually learn about North mm -hmm. Korea from mm -hmm. it? So I will just say that um, I actually love North Korean propaganda. Um, not you, because, you and me um, both, Sue, so we got that in common. <laughs> I'm uh, a big fan of the comic books and the leaflets especially. I began my career uh, studying North Korean propaganda and I think I am grateful for that opportunity because it allows you to really understand um if i can if i can dare say this but you can try to try to understand how north korea thinks mm. i'm not really talking about the people but it's this the, the system and i think that laid a really good foundation for understanding um and, and trying to piece together the different parts of, of the north korea puzzle um to your question about you know what tools and and what do we actually need to be able to to one, to better understand propaganda, but also North Korea. I don't think this is a, it's not a, a, a tangible tool. Um, and um, I, it, it's, it's, I think the most important thing is, is um, I mean, you have to be really self-aware. And I think that comes down to having uh, a little more humility in, in, in what we know and what we don't know, because mm. uh, I think a lot of senior Korea watchers say this, but they say that the more you study this country, the more you realize there's just so many more things that you don't know. Yeah. And I think that should like remind ourselves that, um, I mean, we could be prolific authors, we could be, you know, making important decisions. Um, but at the end of the day, we're still dealing with many unknowns. And I think in a rapidly changing environment, not just in the Korean Peninsula, but amid the the ongoing russian ukraine war uh covid19 is still sort of bothering us u.s china competition there's so many things that are distracting i think our ability to to really clearly see the problem and that's where i think we do sometimes need to take a step back and maybe even look at the way we're approaching the problem mm. um i also fall into that step or that that trap where um, I'm used to the way that I look at North Korea. So it would be beneficial for me also to check my own expectations mm. and uh, my own uh, my own version of, of you know how we're seeing uh, things at play uh, between the two Koreas in South Korea and also um, in, in North Korea as well. So uh, obviously, if you have the language, if you have the academic training, the professional training, the tradecraft, those are also basic skills, but I think with all of that, if, if you're if you keep thinking that whatever quote unquote prediction you made about the country is right, and you have these "I told you so" moments, uh, I, I don't know if that's going to be helpful for really, really understanding 
the country and mm. and yeah just just for your for our i think professional and personal growth um if we're in this business for our own curiosities and and you know we really care about the problem i think i do think that is probably the best prescription mm. <laughs> that i could think of for myself is is to be more self-aware um and to be aware of my own shortcomings and to find also ways to look at the problem not in the typical way that you would because of your training um, as as an analyst or um, as a diplomat but as i pre mentioned earlier um, how a dod person looks at north korea might be different from how a state department person looks at it so also trying to I mean, you're never going to see it perfectly from their perspective, but also trying to see why they're drawing a conclusion from that person's, you know, optics. I think that's also helpful too. Let's uh, move on to um, uh, North Korea's uh, decision-making processes. What can we understand about how the North Korea's leadership makes decision on specifically national security and and uh, domestic economy issues? It all comes down to the regime, I think. I mean, national security is so tied to, you know, Kim Jong-un's own survival. And I think even economic decision-making, I think one instance of Kim Jong-un overlooking um, an economic situation and um, sort of letting go of his reins could spell implications uh, for his standing as a leader. That as much as we want to see Kim Jong-un consider slightly pivoting from his position mm -hmm. to consider um you know economic uh, modernization that in turn i think is also going to so if you if you if kim were to consider reform or some sort of moderation either politically or economically it's going to have a basically a domino effect on the other so i see the two as intertwined and um, both of them clearly um, feed into again this this big question mark for Kim, which is you know what's going to be my fate. Um, yeah. So that's that's how I see it, um, and I think based on what we've also seen in terms of statements coming out from North Korea and previous, the most recent efforts to negotiate with Kim Jong Un, it kind of tells us that uh, he's he's not really looking to give up the weapons uh, mm. because no matter how much. The United States and um, our partners are will guarantee and assure Kim Jong Un, you know, survival or or security. Uh, it, it's probably not going to be sufficient for him to place that sufficient trust and to say that he's going to make that big leap. But to to what extent is he in control? Do you see is is Kim Jong Un mm -hmm. above the system? Is he the system? Is it a case like in the, the French letter c'est moi, or is he locked within the system, or is he simply a part of the system? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, if 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 a leader were truly above the system, would we actually see so much, you know, so many constraints and so much repression? There's something that's driving him. And, and I would say the, the regime at large, um, something that's striving Kim to be the way he is. And I would say that if he felt comfortable um, that the system is, is really in, in his control, uh, we might see a different behavior. 
I, I do wonder if, if Kim feels more constrained <laughs> by the system and there's, there's constant pressure for, for Kim to, uh, to show ruthlessness and, mm. and to show um, and, and to basically demand and, and have people have no choice but to submit because somebody who is and, and, and this is drawing kind of extrapolating Kim Jong-un to just an ordinary person, but somebody who's really confident and, and self-assured would not have to go through such lengths to prove anything. He's got nothing to prove and, and he wouldn't have to worry about control as much. But um, because control is so inherent to his survival, I think that um, for as long as Kim Jong-un lives and for, for as long as he is uh, the North Korean leader and he has you know, the same motivations, we're, we're going to see this vicious cycle where he, he tries to sort of incentivize, aka try to intimidate um, the North Korean population um, into submission. And um, that is, is going to, it, somehow it's going to assure Kim Jong-un that he is, uh, he's doing okay. And that, you know, his, his, his survival um, for X number of years um, is, is going to be guaranteed. During the, the last two and a half years of the pandemic, decisions mm -hmm. were made at a, a high level in North Korea that it, it was more important yeah. to keep COVID out and prevent vectors mm -hmm. of infection from coming in than it was to ensure that um, normal diplomacy could go ahead with diplomats coming and going to Pyongyang uh, and more important than the continued work of international aid organizations in the North. Uh, now, some have suggested that this was because security agencies and ministries are now much more powerful than, for example, the foreign ministry. Uh, how do you see this? And how do you think that mm -hmm. decision was made to go into a complete nationwide lockdown? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My answer to that is, uh, is Kim Jong-un. Um, for me, I know that it's important as a Korea watcher, as a North Korea watcher, to understand and to, to keep abreast of um, who is ranked where in, in, in their hierarchy of power. It indicates one, of course, either their proximity or their, um, their relationship to Kim Jong-un, how much trust he puts on them. And also I think in return, um, there might be even greater pressure on them to perform well. Um, it also indicates particular policies or issues that might be of greater sensitivity for Kim Jong-un. So in, in that respect, I think it's helpful, but bottom line, it's still Kim Jong-un who is the leader. Mm. It's still Kim Jong-un who is going to uh, make that decision um, about, you know, the, the, the broader, more, uh, the, the important decisions that are being made for the country. So I recognize the value in, in the analysis, but I also think that we do have to just Keep that perspective that it's not a a cadre of military officials that are making decisions as far as we know still seems to be Kim Jong-un. As far as the the lockdown goes, I I mean how else would North Korea have handled it if they do not have the the sufficient medical health you know supplies, the technology, the manpower, the 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 knowledge, the skills and all that stuff. If they don't have that, uh, how else would they have been able to contain or, or try to grapple with the pandemic that, I mean, frankly, we didn't know what was going to happen either. So mm. the fact that the regime decided to lock down the country so quickly after we, we found out about COVID 
um, it seems to be to me a, a, a very logical next step um, for, for the regime. But I think the catch is that you have the lockdown and, and you're keeping and you're monitoring the, the, the travel, the, the, the influx and the outflux of people and goods. It's great, but you also need to have the, the adequate economic, the adequate um, public health uh, measures in place to sort of manage um, this. It was a global crisis and it's still an ongoing thing. So I think that's where that extra step that Kim needed to have taken um, mm. didn't happen. And as far as we know, uh, we know that uh, North Korea does have COVID cases, but still is not accepting, you know, vaccinations right. and efforts from from us, from the international community, to to address this and and to try to. Uh, I mean, we can't stop COVID, of course, but try our best to to manage it, um, especially in a country like North Korea. What do you believe, going back in time a bit, what do you believe led mm -hmm. Kim Jong-un to decide in the beginning of 2018 to seek talks with South Korea and the US mm -hmm. rather than mm -hmm. continued confrontation? And that's, it's a question that some, well, that, that, mm -hmm. there's still a lot of disagreement about, about whether he, uh, he sought talks because he was, he was afraid of what Donald Trump might do or because he felt that he was in a strong position and now was the time to bargain. How do you see that? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that... If Kim Jong-un, you know, no matter how, how bold he sounds and, and you know, the, the nuclear weapons aside, Kim does live with, I would say, the fear um, of, of, of consequences, not just to his regime. I, I think the regime is one thing, but I think to his own you know, personal safety or, or survival. So I think that that's something that is always going to be in the back of his mind. It's always going to be something that is is quite harrowing for him. Mm. As much as we we see this this leader who is is he scary? I, I, yes, he is. But um, <laughs> uh, but I think there probably were various multiple factors that played in. Um, we we did see an escalation of tensions between North Korea and, and the United States. But we also had a very um, cooperative South Korea at the time mm -hmm. that was trying to make things, um, you know, try to smooth out the bumps between the two countries. And, and you know, why, like, what is there for Kim Jong-un to lose? Like, what's there for him to lose by seeking negotiations and dialogue with, with the U.S. president? We clearly saw that um, there were many PR opportunities. There were also some anticipation um, and optimism that um, perhaps this time around, we might see something different happen with, with, with North Korea. But I would say also that from the onset, um, and we can go as far back as the Pyeongchang Olympics or the, um, the Korean summit um, that spring, but there was no commitment written or verbal from North Korea to denuclearization of, of North Korea. It was denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that, I think, should have kind of you know, made, us, made us kind of click and say, maybe this is not really going to be anything new. Um, but perhaps because, again, um, new leadership which I think kind of breeds optimism. And um, if, if you're kind of fatigued with the, the cycle of negotiations, then um, perhaps there were people who actually believed that we might be able to see some irreversible changes on the peace front. And um, unfortunately, uh, that 
did not seem to have happened um, since whatever 2018 to uh, 2020. Does the US understanding of Kim Jong-un's decision-making process significantly affect its own decision-making process in how it acts mm -hmm. and reacts to North Korea? I think that depends on the leadership too. And, and uh, the administration, of course, and the, uh, the people who are advising the president, I think, might have uh, a, a rich background on the Korean Peninsula. They, they might have a, a good understanding, or they might not. But again, I think I don't think this problem is just exclusive to the United States. I think we could also say the same thing about the South Korean presidencies mm -hmm. um, in the past and, and the current, that our own understanding and our maybe our own even expectations um, about certain policy goals that we want to achieve, uh, whether it's North Korea or something that's tangentially related to the Korean Peninsula, will, I think, inevitably color our views and uh, the way that we proceed with the North Korea challenge. And especially because this is not a, a new problem. This is something that we have been dealing with for, for many decades, mm. that there might be fatigue. And, you know, maybe instead of trying to um, go for, you know, the, the go, what is it, go big or go nothing, or go big or go home. Go big or go home, um, yeah. Right. Um, trying a piecemeal approach that sort of leads us to that ultimate goal might seem to be more enticing than trying to do something that, that sounds so massive and, and you can't do it with an administration. And I think that's also just part of human nature, I think. Mm. <laughs> yeah. If things continue as they are without any major changes, where do you think we will be on the Korean Peninsula mm. 10 years from now? It, this kind of sounds like a question, you know, where do you see yourself 10 years from now? Yeah, it does a bit, yes. <laughs> Whereas it's more like, where do you see North Korea 10 years from now? 10 years from now, Kim Jong-un is probably going to be in his, what is it, late 40s? Yeah. Yeah. Um, assuming that his health is okay, um, <laughs> he might still be in power. You know, this is where we have to be focused and also sober about the North Korea problem, realistically. We have to be really, really realistic about it. But I think in the case of today's geopolitical stakes and uncertainties, we're also seeing this, it's not, I, I wouldn't call it a trend, but we're seeing steps, movements that sort of indicate that while we recognize that North Korea is a growing, persistent, and a very reliable problem, there are other broader, bigger picture issues that are or that seem to be of greater strategic importance to the, the major countries and of mm -hmm. course we're talking about united states and china mm. while we cannot dismiss and overlook these problems i think the trying to kind of bucket the north korea problem under these broader issues and sort of treating it as a sub issue I think is only going to play into Kim Jong-un's anticipation, perhaps. Mm. Um, it's not like he's planning this, but uh, that's, that's how I see it. So, I mean, I do think that Washington and Seoul are they're recognizing that this is a problem, but from the U.S.'s perspective, uh, there are bigger fish to fry. Um, that's a cliche, but 
that, that's how it sees it. So I wonder if we're going to prolong dealing with the North Korea problem to a point where it cannot be contained or addressed in the most, the right word, not efficient, uh, but, but dealt in the most reasonable, let's mm. say reasonable manner, because to, to sort of ignore North Korea and to dismiss and to treat these weapons provocations as an ordinary everyday thing. On the one hand, I think it it, it tells Kim Jong-un that we are not going to be responding to every little provocation of yours, but it also might be telling Kim that it's okay. And our, our tolerance mm. and our threshold for pain is actually getting higher. Therefore, um, maybe 10 years down the road, we might be seeing a, a, a bigger North Korea problem. Mm. And in that case, what is going how is that going to alter the alliance but also the the way the the power dynamics are sort of trying to be balanced out right now how is that going to look you know a decade later uh, last question this one's out completely mm -hmm. out of left field should south korea get its own nuclear weapons and if so why <laughs> i don't think i have the um the the professional or the, um, the the intellectual capacity or, or the, the background or the authority to, to, to really say this, but I know that it's been coming up very more frequently now, I think. Um, right, this is why I'm asking this question a lot these days, because it just seems <laughs> that in the last year, out of nowhere, yes. I'm suddenly hearing this from a lot of places, both in mm -hmm. South Korea and in the United States, mm -hmm. and it surprised me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, um, you know, it's not just the, 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 the um, the sophistication of North Korea's weapons, but we are also seeing um, a, a live example before our eyes with Russia and Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So the the threat of instability, um, the questions of what if, and um, greater insecurity that stems not just from the the ongoing war, but also I would say also that the pandemic has also kind of altered our perceptions about. Um, alliance relations, uh, reliability, and, and the ability to, to, to self-defense, and, and um, how do you manage your own national interests versus, you know, assisting and, and um, prioritizing relationships with an ally? So yeah. those are, I think, legitimate questions, but I think, again, um, the consequences of more countries going nuclear uh, of course, that's not really within my lane to, to mm. talk about it, but I do think that it's 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 very easy for politicians, I think, to, to talk about this because it's it's sensational. Um, it also brings in nationalism, and um, it could sort of exacerbate perhaps um, lingering resentment or even um, intensify mm. uh, certain attitudes you have towards a country. But again, we do need to think about. The, the realities of, of, of that happening. And it, I think at that point, it's not just going to be South Korea, but um, what about Japan yep. and, and other countries in the region? So yeah. I think from the arguments that are being made either for or against, to me, seem, seem valid from their perspective. But I think if you're talking about the interests of one, of course, national security and, and national interests, but also how might this play into dynamics broadly? I think we are looking probably at a very different and, and stark picture. Mm. A very restrained answer, very diplomatic. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, I'd like to thank you once again, Sue Kim, for coming on the NK News podcast. Thanks.
Listeners, don't forget that you can find Sue Kim on Twitter at M-L-L-S-O-O-K-I-M. We'll put a link in the, uh, the show notes. And ladies and gentlemen, if you already have an NK News subscription, do take a look at our NK Pro platform, which offers unparalleled services specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula. It's almost like being a member of the IC without having to join the agency. You can inquire <laughs> about access and a free trial membership by writing an email to membership at nknews.org today. Also, if you have any feedback, questions, or guest recommendations, please send them to podcast at nknews.org. Our thanks, as always, go to Brian Betts and Arius Dare for facilitating this episode, and to Gabby Magnuson, our post-recording producer genius. Thanks, and listen again next time. <laughs>